So we are in Raising the Bar, our series, and I, I love this series. It has been, um, it's funny, how, I, I don't know if Pastor Shane kind of shared this story, but we were in staff meeting, and um, all of us just had like, we were a little bit, not angry is the word, but there was just something in a, a couple of us that was just like burning. We're like, we're just, we're getting, pa- there it is, we are passionate. And if we felt like we were kind of like stuck in a rut and we're like, what can we do? What can we do? And, and Pastor Sam was like, let's do this. Let's, let's run with this. He, he, I don't know if the Lord spoke to him or he just got excited, but, and he, and he took off. Um, and, and this is the, the child of that, uh, this whole raising the bar series. It's something that, that in my life so far in what the three weeks we've been doing this, I'm seeing changes in, in my time with the Lord. I'm seeing changes in my marriage. I'm seeing changes in the way I, I talk with people and the way I, and it's just, it's changed so much already in three weeks. So I, you know, we're not even halfway through and I'm, I'm so excited. So, so excited, um, to see what God is going to do. So to start out this evening, uh, I want to, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, there's this man, we'll call him Patrick. Patrick lives on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, no, completely cut off from civilization, completely alone, no technology. I mean, they are, you know, we're talking tribal living here. Uh, they live in grass huts, and Patrick is... Uh, by most standards, a very good man. He, um, you know, the, the husband of one wife, uh, the father of his children. He loves his children. He takes care of his children. He works very hard to provide for his children. And also he, um, he and his family, they give to the less fortunate members of their tribe. They, uh, they give to the poor. They, um, I mean, he's just a good dude. Like this is a guy that if you met him, you'd be like, Patrick, be my friend, man. Teach me your ways. He's a good, good guy. The only thing is, because he's been separated from civilization, he has never heard the gospel. Patrick has never heard about Jesus, never heard of the saving grace of the cross. But he's a great person. He's a good person. He strives to, to, to be better every day. Well, one day Patrick is walking out to harvest some pineapples uh, because his wife loves pineapples and it's her birthday. So he's going out to get these pineapples to bring them home. And and in he in the middle of the the jungle he steps or comes across a, a a snake, a poisonous viper. It grabs onto his leg and there he dies right there in the middle of the jungle, all alone. Now my question for you about Patrick, this man who is a great, great, great man by anyone's standards, is Patrick going to heaven or hell? Is Patrick a, he's a good man. He's just never had that opportunity to accept Jesus. Probably he would have had someone made their way to that island to, to share the love of God with him. He probably would have said yes to Jesus, but he never had that chance. So does he go to heaven or hell? Say, who, who says he goes to hell? He burns in hell. Who says, oh no, man, God wouldn't do that. God would not do that. Well, see, here's the thing. I've, I, I ask that question to people all the time, and especially to non-Christians. Um, I, 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 I use this as a, a tool to kind of start the, the train of, of understanding why we need Jesus. 
Um, if this man, if Patrick, having never heard of the gospel by no fault of his own, having never heard of the gospel, if he got a free pass to heaven, then Jesus telling us to go into all the world to preach the gospel and to make disciples is the worst advice anyone could ever give you, ever. It's, it's kind of stupid, actually. If, if someone never had the chance to know Jesus gets a free pass to heaven, the best thing we could do as Christians is to shut down the churches, burn our Bibles, lock ourselves in our houses, and never mention the name of Jesus again. Because if someone has the chance to say no to him and go to hell, it would be better if they never heard the gospel at all, right? Right? So why do I, why do I say that? I say that to kind of segue into what we're going to talk about tonight. And we're talking about raising the bar of discipleship. And we're going to talk tonight about the why discipleship is so, so, so important. Uh, you know, Mark sixteen fifteen, go into all the world and make disciples. This is a, 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 a passage that I've, I kind of build my, my life around because, um, it's the last thing Jesus said. And, and, you know, everyone knows the last words people say. They're kind of important. Usually there's something that they've thought about. And if they know they're going to be their last words, it's going to be something profound, something of, of extreme importance. So we're going to talk about discipleship tonight. So the word discipleship in the Greek is pronounced um, mathetio, I believe is the correct pronunciation. I had to, I had to check with a buddy of mine that studies Greek. Um, and it, uh, the definition, what it means, is helping someone to progressively learn the word of God to become a matured, growing disciple. Well, of course, this is the definition in a biblical context. If you were to look up in a Greek dictionary, it, w- it would be, be a little bit different. Um, but I was not satisfied with this definition that I found in the strong, concord- strong concordance because the word is in the definition. You know, like the end there, disciple, is in there. And I, I, I don't like when people use... Because how do you really know what a word means if they use the word in the definition? So I was like, okay, we got to find out something more. So I looked up what disciple meant, and I love this. Again, from the Greek mathetes, uh, from the root math, meaning the mental effort needed to think something through. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, I'm assuming it's where we get mathematics, which I'm not a fan of, but I like the definition. Um, and this can be defined, this word in the Greek can be defined as a learner or someone who adheres to a specific set of teachings and also, uh, also can be used as someone who is apprenticed to a master. Um, so the reason I, I brought this up from the beginning is to, to get an understanding. If, if we don't lay a groundwork, we can't build on it, right? There, the foundation, when you build a house, the foundation is the most important part. You know, you, I see uh, there's a bank getting built uh, over by my house or by our apartments. And for months and months and months, all they were doing was working on the ground. It didn't look like anything was going at all. And then Lyric and I went out of town for like three days and we got back and there's three stories of steel beams up already. And the, the frame is all built in like three days. But they've been spending months laying the foundation. So laying a foundation is important because if the foundation's messy, the rest of the building's not going to work, right? Amen. So, um, 
Imagine, we're going to do another little imagine idea. Um, so think, I want you to think of an evangelist. Uh, someone like Billy Graham. You can use Billy Graham if you want, or it can be someone completely fictitious. Male, female, doesn't matter. But somebody who is a well-known, full-time evangelist. They travel the world, travel the country, preaching the gospel. Okay? We got it? Everyone got got somebody in their mind? Now, let's imagine that they, they have a, a healthy career of about 30 years, of when they start traveling to when they end their ministry, when they retire or, you know, they go home to see the Lord, whatever it is. So imagine a, he preaches, he or she preaches for 30 years, okay? Now, let's say on average, on average over those 30 years, they were able to help lead roughly 10,000 people to, sal- to salvation. I think I heard somebody say that that was what Billy Graham did in the height of his ministry, was about 10,000 people a year would answer an altar call. And that to me, that just blows me away that you could get that many people um, to know Jesus. That, that's awesome. So each year, um, he or she, whoever your evangelist is, will say over a 30-year period, um, they average 10,000 salvations per year, okay? So 30 years times 10,000 salvations comes to about 300,000 souls that have been saved through the ministry of this evangelist. Okay, I think we can all agree that's a pretty good number. 300,000 people is fantastic. However, there's a bit of a problem because Jesus never said, go into all the world and get people saved. The problem, and there's nothing, I'm not trying to insult Billy Graham. He has a great ministry. I aspire to be as great of a man of God as, as he is or anyone like that. The problem with the, um, just getting someone saved is that they, we don't know what happens after that. How many people does Billy Graham know of that are still walking a Christian life because of his ministry? Now I'm not saying a lot of them aren't, but I, I'm just saying, you see the problem with with this type of evangelism. And so, you know, Jesus never said, go into all the world and get people saved. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. So, let me give you a, a different, an alternative to this evangelistic effort, okay? Now, imagine me. I go out tomorrow. What's tomorrow? October 1st, Yeah. Tomorrow, I go out to Walmart, and I meet a guy named Patrick, we'll say. (laughs) I meet a guy named Patrick, and he and I get to talking. He asks me what I do. I tell him, well, I'm a a pastor. He goes, oh, like in a church, all that Jesus stuff? I say, yeah, man, all that Jesus stuff. And we start talking about Jesus, and we talk about the gospel, and, and the Holy Spirit guides me in my words, and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm able to lead him to salvation, okay? So then I get Patrick's number, I put it in my phone, and the next day, I shoot him a text like, hey man, let's go get some lunch. We meet up at lunch, we meet up at Waffle House, because that's like my favorite lunch spot. We meet up at Waffle House, and we talk for a few hours, we just talk about life. We talk about the things of the Lord. We, we, I explain to him really what the, the uh, implications are of what he, the decision that he made. And, so, and then over the next year, one year, from October 1st, 2015 to October 1st, 2016, I spend 
a regular amount of time, weekly meetings, hangout sessions with Patrick. We talk about the Lord. I teach him the Bible. We, I, I get him a nice Bible. I take him through the Gospels. We start reading the epistles. We learn all about Jesus, all about his word. Um, we, I, you know, I, I, we go through the Bible, and, and I just start to pour into this guy every day for a year, one year. And then October 1st, 2016, Patrick and I go back to that same Walmart, and we split. I go to sporting goods, he goes to the grocery section, and we're looking for somebody, and we grab somebody else. We strike up a conversation. We start talking. We, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we lead them to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We get their phone numbers. We start hanging out with them, and we each, over the next year, begin to pour into those people and begin to disciple them, teach them about Jesus, teach them the things of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so one year at a time, one person at a time. So if we start out the first year, there's what, two of us, right? One and one, one plus one, two. There's two of us that have been saved and discipled, okay? So we're, and we're not just discipled and saved, but we're ready to disciple other people. Year two, we've each found one other person and we have spent that year discipling them, teaching them the ways of the Lord. What does that bring us up to? Four people. Year three, we do the exact same thing. Same thing. Go to that same Walmart, do that exact same thing. After, at the end of year three, we've got eight people, right? Because there was four of us. We each grabbed one, so that's four. So now we're, at first we were in addition. Now we're into multiplication, all right? And I think it's kind of funny because in the book of Acts, Pastor, you mentioned you've been reading through the book of Acts. At the beginning of, of Acts, when Peter preaches that awesome sermon, it says that 3,000 people were added to the church. After that, just about any time it talks about the church, church growth, it says the church was multiplied because they weren't just getting people saved. They were getting people discipled. So after three years, we got eight people. We do that again, four years. What are we up to? Do that again. After five years, we're up to 32 years. Now, we look at my ministry, we look at Billy Graham's ministry. Billy Graham, after five years, has 50,000 people. I've got 32. Um, he's, a little, he's in the lead a little bit, all right? But I'm, I'm not just leading people to the Lord, I'm discipling them. I'm equipping them to live a life that is holy and righteous and that can reach other people. So we go to six years, we're at 64 now, 32 times 2, 64. After seven years, we've made it all the way. Oh, we're in the triple digits now. We're up to 128, all right? 128, we're, we're coming for you, Billy. Uh, after eight years, that doubles again, 256. Nine years, 512. Ten years, after ten years of ministry, after ten years of, of literally me only ministering and discipling one person at a time and challenging those that I've discipled to do the same, after 10 years, 1,024 people have been equipped to reach the world for Christ. There's not just 1,024 people that got their get-out-of-hell-free card. We're talking about 1,024 people that are equipped for ministry, equipped to literally go into the nations and make disciples. So, okay, we fast forward 15 years. After 15 years, we're up to 32,768 people, okay? 
over 32,000 people that are discipled, empowered by the scripture and empowered by the Holy Spirit to change the world. After 20 years, get this, after 20 years of me in ministry, one person at a time, one year, we're over a million people. After just 20 years, we blew past Billy Graham, getting 10,000 people a year saved. We're not just getting people saved, but we're getting people discipled and raised up, grounded in churches, building the kingdom of God. 1,448,576 people, over a million people. That's a small or a big city. That's like 10 times the size of Beaumont. People that are discipled, ready to go. Just from me, one person at a time. Fast forward 10 more years, 30 years, we are over a billion people in my 30-year career. One person at a time, one year at a time. Over one billion people. Not just saved, not just not going to hell, but people that are rooted and grounded in love and in truth and that will go out and change the world. They're not just going to not go to hell. They're going to change things. They're going to make disciples. So do you see why Jesus was very specific with the words that he used? He didn't say, go out and get people saved. Now, please hear me, hear my heart. Getting people saved is not a bad thing. It is absolutely not. We want people to not go to hell. Of course, we want people to be joined with Jesus. But how much more impactful is it when we not just get them saved, but we get them plugged into the local church, we get them discipled, we get them rooted and grounded in Scripture, rooted and ground them in love, grounded in love, and going out and changing the world. Jesus, here's a little uh, a little theology for you. I'm in seminary now, so I'm all learned, learned. Um, so Jesus, uh, his ministry... If, if I were to ask you how long his ministry was on earth, how long would you guys say? Three years usually is, is, the, is the accepted length. Um, do we know how we know that? Does anyone know what chapter or verse of the Bible it tells us that Jesus was on earth ministering for three years? Yeah, there, there isn't one. It, doesn't, it does not tell us anywhere in Scripture how long Jesus ministered. So why do we say three years? Well, uh, in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus goes to Jerusalem three times. The only reason most likely Jesus would go to Jerusalem would be during the, the festival of Passover to go and, and be there. So through the Gospel of John, we see, we assume, we collect that Jesus' ministry was three years long. However, the what about the rest of the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each only record, the Synoptic Gospels only record one time of Jesus going to Jerusalem, which you could argue, especially Luke, Luke says this is, he says in the beginning, this is a, a chronological look. I have, I've sought it out. I did the study. This is, this is how it went. And Jesus only went to Jerusalem right before he died. So, you know, uh, the, these three Gospels, people, they, they talk to him about, they're like fingers, like these three fingers, they're very, very similar. They have very similar function, but they look a little bit different. They're, this one's kind of tilted that way. This one's a little bit that way. They're different lengths, um, but they're still fingers, right? Well, then they talk about John being like the thumb of the, go- of, of the Gospels. It's, it's still a finger. It still functions similarly, but it, it just kind of moves different. It looks a little bit different. It moves a little bit different. It flows different. And so 
How long was Jesus's ministry? We don't really know. It's probably safe to say, if you look at the dates and the history thing, it's probably safe to say three years. There's nothing wrong with saying three years. There's nothing wrong with saying one year. But just, I say all that to say, let's look at what Jesus did. If we did what Jesus did in a three-year ministry, three years on the earth, he had 12 disciples, averages out to be about four disciples per year. He, had he kept going, would have had 4,290, I'm sorry, 4,294,967,296 disciples had, had, if we do it four at a time, like he did, average, of course, um, in a three, in a three year ministry. Now, if he just had a one year ministry, he did 12 in one year. So let's, let's say we discipled 12 people at a time, which that's, that's a, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot in today's world in, in one year. But if we did, in a one-year ministry, we'd have six, almost six and a half billion people, almost the entire world at the end of a 30-year career, discipled. So if you're sitting there thinking, what good does me discipling one person do? That's what good. I'm sorry, that's what good. You guys can't see that one. That's for me. That is what good. One person, one disciple can do See, Jesus, Jesus never wanted us just to get people saved. He wanted us to make disciples. Uh, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable of the farmer who scattered the seed. And some seed fell on good soil, some seed fell on the path, some seed fell on rocky soil, or soil that had rocks beneath it, shallow soil. And what did Jesus say about this shallow soil? The seeds sprung up really quickly. But because they didn't have any roots, they didn't have anything deep under beneath the surface, when the sun came out, when just that little bit of heat came, they withered and died. And that's what happens when we just get somebody saved and don't get them discipled. They shoot up with the joy of the Lord quick, but when the pain of the enemy, when the heat of life comes, there's no roots, there's nothing deep within them to keep them going, and they die. That is the worst thing that can happen to somebody. So when we disciple people, we have to... Or when we get people saved, we can't just say, hey, here's a track, see you next time. We need to get them plugged in to our church. When you are ministering in your own lives, you have to not just share the love of Jesus, but then teach the love of Jesus and teach who Jesus is. Um, something important that I want to I wanna point out, that um, discipleship and mentorship are not the same thing. I know that sounds kind of funny, and the difference is, is, is minuscule, but it's important that we need to address this. I have up here, uh, someone who mentors gives advice and teaches from their own life experience. Someone who disciples teaches about Jesus, and that's where the power comes from. Every, any school across this, this country, any public school, probably has some type of mentorship program, and it has nothing at all to do with Jesus Christ. You can be mentored, you can teach values, you can teach life experience, and you can teach wisdom without Jesus, but you can't disciple without Jesus. Now, hear me again, know my heart, I'm not saying mentorship is wrong. We, my generation, we're smart, 
We've got a lot of intelligence. We've got a lot of knowledge. And what we don't know, we can find in about three seconds on our cell phones. So we don't necessarily need the knowledge. What we need is the wisdom that comes from a life experience. Older generation, we still need mentorship. We need life experience. We need wisdom because we are, we're passionate. We're excited about the things of the Lord. We want to make a difference. But passion can sometimes drive you down a road that you shouldn't go down. Am I right? And so we need that mentorship, but more than the mentorship, we need discipleship. We need people to teach us about Jesus. My generation, the millennial generation, um, there is more percent, a higher percentage than any generation prior to us that is fatherless, has no father, physical father in our lives. And I won't go into the boring statistics and details about it because we could talk about that all night. But there are, let's just face it, the fact is there's a lot of young people, a lot of young people that don't have a dad in the picture. Okay? So, but guess what? That means that responsibility of fathering falls on, on us, falls on the church, falls on the older generation. My grandparents, my parents' generation, they are now charged with fathering a fatherless generation. Who can tell me who the most famous biblical fatherless person was? Or uh, let, me, let me rephrase. Most famous disciple who didn't have a father. Nobody? Open up your Bibles to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. This is Paul writing to his spiritual son, his son in the faith, Timothy. It says, I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. See, Paul was living in a primarily... Um, really kind of a chauvinistic society, if, if we will. Um, women were an afterthought. It was, you know, if, if, if you're going to write, that's why the genealogy of Christ, 97% of the genealogies are, are men, father to son, father to son, father to son, because it was all about the fathers. But what is Paul talking about here? He brings up grandmommy and mommy. It's pretty safe to say that Timothy didn't have a dad in the picture. Timothy had no father. Or if he did have a father, he sure wasn't a good one. Well, obviously he had a, a, someone to lend their, you know, DNA to the, to, to Timothy's creation. But in terms of having someone there to, to disciple him, to raise him, to teach him, Timothy didn't have anybody. And if the dad was in the picture, he sure wasn't a godly man. Because then Paul would be saying, hey, I love the faith that was in your dad, Patrick. And the way that he passed it down to you. But he, he's not there. He's not mentioning. He mentions the grandmother because fact of the matter was Timothy did not have a dad. Timothy was a spiritual precursor to my generation. Someone, we, the, one of the greatest generations to ever live has come before my generation. They've changed the way that we, that America is. The way that we do government, the way that we do finances, the way that we, that we run families, they changed the, the face of America, but now they have left 
a generation that has no, no fathers. We have a generation that, that somehow doesn't have any, and we're just talking physical. Now, if we talk on the spiritual level, we don't have spiritual fathers or mothers. The reason I wanted to talk about discipleship, when Pastor Sam approached me about doing a topic, the reason I wanted to talk about discipleship so bad, and I actually meant to talk about this at the beginning and I forgot, is because it is, it's so important to me because I have never in my entire life had someone come to me and try to disciple me. Never once. I've been raised in church. I have grandparents, and even my dad was a pastor for a while. I have have a lot of people that have been in ministry, full-time ministry, great men and women of God, but no one has ever taken me aside and said, hey, let's do this whole discipleship thing. Let's, let's work it. And let me tell you, my, my growth as a Christian has been stunted greatly. Greatly. There was a four or five year chunk of, my, I mean, I know I've not lived a long time, but four or five years for a 26 year old, that's, that's one fifth of my life. And one fifth of my life was spent in sin because nobody loved me enough to disciple me. And here's the thing. There's no excuse for that. There's absolutely no excuse for that. Shame on us for not having our church busting at the seams. Because, see, Jesus, when Jesus went and got his disciples, the the disciples weren't running up to Jesus and begging him, please teach me, teach me, teacher, teach me, teach me, teach me, please, 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 please. No, Jesus went to them. Jesus sought them out and said, hey, you, Quit what you're doing. Come follow me. I'm going to show you how to fish for men. See, the, the burden of discipleship is on the discipler, not the disciples. It's our job. It's the discipler's job. So if you're sitting there and thinking, well, no, none of these young folk are coming around me. It's not our job to come around you. And I, I don't mean that in any disrespect, but the burden is on the discipler. Now, to my generation, my, my folks out there, anyone who's not had a spiritual father or mother, hey, quit crying about it. That's literally the Lord told me in prayer because I was, I was so boohooing. Just like, Lord, no one ever, no one wants to mentor me. No one wants to teach me. No, and, and, and Jesus said, shut up, Michael. What are you doing? I've got your, all the discipleship you need right here. Get into the word. See the problem. Actually, I shouldn't say shut up from the pulpit. I apologize. Forgive me, Jesus. But um, here's the thing. My generation, millennials out there, listen to me. If we use no one coming to us as an excuse, what's going to happen to us is exactly what happened to the Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 13. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, Paul, or Saul, uh, King Saul is trying to wage war okay, against the Philistines. But the problem was Israel had no blacksmiths. I think it's, it's, uh, where are we at? First Samuel 13, 19. It says, now there was no blacksmiths to be found throughout all the land of Israel. What's that mean? They had nobody to sharpen their weapons. If they wanted to sharpen their plows or their, or their, uh, ox gourds or, or anything, they had to go to literally to the enemy to get it done. The Philistines were the only ones that had blacksmiths. And here's the thing, spiritually, what does that mean for us? We can't depend on somebody else to sharpen our sword. 
We cannot depend on someone else because if we depend on somebody else, we will always be depending on somebody else. Learn how to sharpen your own sword and then teach others how to sharpen theirs. If you've not had a spiritual mother or a father, and now I'm not just talking to millennials, anybody in here of any age, if you've never had a spiritual father or a mother, be one to somebody else because I promise they need it. They need it. Um, my wife, and I, I lost this, I, I ran right past it. My wife, uh, we were, we were um, having our, our quiet time with the Lord <clears throat> a couple weeks ago. And um, she knew I was, I was going to be speaking on discipleship. And she was reading, I believe it was in Psalm 40. And um, it was a commentary on, in one of her study Bibles. And I don't remember what the passage was specifically, but the commentary on it was so, it, it, it punched me in the face. It really did. It said, someone so keenly aware of their need for God should never withhold that knowledge from others. I'm going to read that again. Someone so keenly aware of their need for God should never withhold that knowledge from others. If you do not have any age, I'm talking to everybody, even teenagers, I'm talking to you. If you don't have somebody that you are pouring into, you are willingly withholding the knowledge of Christ from a generation that needs him more than they need the air that they breathe. Shame on us for withholding the, the, the giver of life from this next generation. But there's something we need to be aware of, be very aware of, is the first rule of authority, having spiritual authority over someone else, is you've got to be submitted to authority yourself. You cannot just be, even Jesus, what did Jesus say? I only do what I see the Father do. He was under the authority, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the, the being in which all things were created through, still was submitted to the authority of the Father. And so as we, which I hope we do, as we go out of here tonight and begin to search for people to disciple, know that you need to get submitted to yourself. If you are out there doing ministry and you're not submitted to authority, you're in trouble and you're in sin. Spiritual submission, you have to have covering. Anything outside of the nature of God is sin. Jesus was under authority. If you're not under authority, you're sinning, plain and simple. I'm not pulling punches tonight. I apologize. But that's how we are. <clears throat> and so I'm going to finish up this last little thought. <clears throat> We're in a, um, an interesting time in the church. Um, we have those part of the great generation my grandparents, my parents' age people that are have done so many awesome, wonderful things for the church and for Christ and for the kingdom, but they're transitioning out. They're, they're, whether they're retiring or whether they're going home to see the Lord or whatever it is, they're, they're moving, and, and my generation is stepping in to authority. And then there's those, those like transgenerational people in their, their forties and thirties that are, are, they're not quite the older, they're not quite the younger, but they're in that, that little, that, that middle ground. And these people are the people that are, are coming into authority. We're switching places. We're in, we're in a transition. And it's so important for this transition to be successful that everyone approaches this with the heart of a disciple or a discipler. 
See, it's so easy for my generation when we come into authority, when we come into a position of power, it's so easy for us to immediately want to just change everything. You know, oh, it's outdated, it's old, it's boring, or whatever that may be. And we, and what we end up doing is we, we step on, on, on y'all's toes. We, we step all over your toes. We, 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 we offend you. We, we, we rub the wrong way. And that's not of God. Offense is not, of, is not of God. So a word to the millennials, um, and the transgenerational people out there. Do not step on the toes of those that came before you. Stand on their shoulders. If we are stepping on toes and trying to push them out, it's not going to work. We need them. We need their wisdom. We need their authority. A lot of times we need their money, <laughs> you know, just to run ministry. Let's be, let's be honest. Um, don't try to redo everything. Don't push them out. Stand on their shoulders. They've built great, great things. And it, it only benefits us to follow after what they've done and to stand on their shoulders rather than stepping on their toes. But a word to the older, older generation, please don't put your toes on your shoulders. Please don't. It's so easy. It is so easy for there to be tension here. And it's so easy for, for even when we try to, to come and stand on your shoulders, if you make yourselves easily offendable and easily and just too entrenched in things, it's going to be a problem. It's a give and take on both sides. And it's, but we need each other. We cannot do it without you and you cannot keep doing it without us. And we have to go together. And the root of it, the start of it, the heart of what is going to make this happen is if we raise the bar in the area of discipleship. If we, if older generation, if you start taking those of us who are pursuing ministry and pursuing the things of the Lord and start to pour into us, teach us things in the Bible that maybe we don't know yet, or and mentor us, teach us, help us. Young people, go out and start raising up the next generation. Make sure that our time in leadership is as short as physically possible because we have done such a good job of raising up those behind us that they overtake us. Jesus said, if you think what I'm doing is awesome, you just wait until you see what you do. Greater things are yet to come. And so that's my challenge to my age. Start raising up people now so that by the time we're 40, they're already ready to take over because they're so full of the Spirit, they're so full and comfortable and confident in their giftings and their anointings that they can just take over because that is what is going to win this world for Jesus. It's not a bunch of people getting saved. It's a bunch of people getting discipled and going out and making more disciples. You know, Jesus Jesus did a lot of awesome things when he was on the earth. He, but he didn't spend most of his time teaching or preaching to the masses. He didn't spend most of his time healing people. He spent most of his time pouring into a small ragtag group of, of kids that had it in them to change the world. So my challenge to us tonight, go out and find your ragtag group of kids that have it in them to change the world because I promise they're out there. I promise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we thank you for your word that, that you have revealed the truth of your heart to us through your word. Lord, I pray that as we go from here tonight, 
that we will take this, this call, we will take this charge to raise the bar in our discipleship, Jesus, that we won't just worry about getting people to say a prayer, but that we worry about getting people plugged in and taught and grown and getting their roots grown down deep, Lord Jesus. Because when our roots are deep, we can withstand the things that the enemy will try to throw at us. Lord, I pray that you will challenge each of us in our lives. Show us the, the young people. Show us, or it doesn't even have to be young, but young in the faith, Lord. Show us the young in the faith, people that need you, that need to be discipled. Will you not just show us who they are, but Lord, show us how to disciple. Lord, you are the great discipler. You are the great teacher. And only you can show us how to do this, Lord. We can't do it without you. We desire your presence in our lives. We desire your spirit. We desire you, Jesus. So help us, Lord. We can't even love you unless you loved us first. We thank you for this, uh, this message tonight, Lord. Anything that was said that was not of you or not led by your spirit, I pray that it will just fall by the wayside, Lord Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Guys, make your choices. Change the world. Amen, amen. He convicted me. No, the Holy Spirit convicted me. How many of you know we can't convict anybody? But I got convicted in my heart tonight. That means the Spirit of God is moving in this place. And uh, uh, it's an awesome truth. You know, I, that, that great commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's the kicker. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded them. It's about Jesus, just like Michael said. And so we've, we've got the word of God. We've got what Jesus told us. We've got the truth. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to figure out what to say. He's already told us the, the lifestyle of a disciple in scripture. So, uh, let's begin to open our eyes up. You know, I'm like Michael. I, I, I had to fight and scrap for everything I got. Uh, in fact, some of the influences of my life kind of turned their back on, on, uh, ministry for a season and left me kind of hanging. Uh, and I had to scrap and keep from being bitter and angry. And, and, uh, and I have some people who didn't cross that bridge. They, they, they got bitter and angry. But you know what? That's irrelevant. We've got to invest. We're investors. How many of you know we've, we invest in people? That's it. And, and here's a question we'll close tonight. Let's stand up together. What are we investing in others around us? What's our investment in others? And that's what, that's what disciples are. They're investors in people's lives. And so Father, tonight, as even as we've already prayed, open our eyes and ears to hear what you have to say to us tonight. And Lord, let us become investors of the gospel, investors of the truths of Jesus Christ and teach them to observe all things that you've commanded us. And Lord, we thank you for that last promise. And, and, and lo, you're with us always, even to the end of the age. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. It's time to raise the bar. Tell five people, we got to raise the bar. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday. Amen.